0: Well, one of the unexpected casualties of COVID-19 is the smorgasbord. Uh, That's just a fancy name for an all-you-can-eat buffet, or as we sometimes used to call them, chew and spew. Uh, uh, the, The good old smorgasbord used to be a great thing you could go to. You could fill your plate with every single item on the menu without having to commit to any of them. So you could have prawns and sausage and broccoli and gravy all on the same plate. Or oysters and chicken and dim sims, potato salad and mustard. Bring it back to the table. It's like, wow, what have you got there, love? Oh. <laughs> and then there's the dessert bar. But thanks to the pandemic, the help yourself or you can eat buffet is now as extinct as the dinosaurs But not when it comes to modern day spirituality, because we still seem to think that the smorgasbord approach to spirituality is still the normal way of understanding God. Most people think that all religions are basically the same, and that it's fine to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all at the same time. So some people might pray the rosary, believe in karma, follow star signs, and use healing crystals. All at the same time. It certainly seems to be the safe and the nice way to have a spiritual experience in the 21st century. But when you have a closer look at the main religions, you'll see they are all very, very different to one another. In fact, All of the big five religions, so Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam and Hinduism, they are all very, very different. They are so, so different that these different religions cannot all be true. And it's funny because when a person tries to be nice and inclusive and they say, well, I personally think that all religions are the same, what they do is they equally offend devout members of all five religions all at the same time. If you thought that was possible, you can do it that way. So if you tell me that Christianity, well, it's just like Islam, it's just like Judaism, I'll either think that you're clueless or rude or, you know, which is exactly what my Muslim and Jewish friends will also think. But in our current cultural climate, we think that tolerance is all about believing that all religions are the same. But all that does is just show an equal level of intolerance to all devout people. And one of the reasons is that it assumes that religions are basically just like magazines in a waiting room. They're just mindless ways to pass the time until you die. But that's not true. There is only one God and all other forms of spirituality are false. Which means that if you go the path of Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age or any other religion, then the Bible tells us clearly that you are on the highway to hell. Now that's not very politically correct, is it? But as people who know the true and living God and who are united with Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, we know that what Jesus said was true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by Jesus. Full stop. End of sentence. A lot of people won't like that. And I can understand that. It's a pretty bold statement. It's a narrow view of God It's a narrow-minded view of the spiritual world, saying that only one is true. But there will come a time when every single human will recognise that this is the truth. And we await that day with great longing. It's not an arrogance. It's just a recognition of what we know for certain. But what if Jesus decided that, that he was going to put on a special event to prove that all the other religions are false and that he really is the one true God. Hard to imagine exactly what that event would really be like if somehow by divine intervention we were told, make sure you make it down to this particular field at this particular time because I am going to prove without any doubt that I, Jesus, am the only way, the truth and the life. What would it be like? Well, we actually get a glimpse of that very kind of thing in today's passage. It was hundreds of years before Jesus came, but it's a very significant time because we will see tonight a duel of the deities. We'll see a special event in the life of the prophet Elijah. Now, last week we got to meet Elijah and we heard at the start of chapter 17 that he said that God would stop the rain in Israel And that would be the case so that they'd realise that they'd walked away from God and they need to come back. And after Elijah told them that, God said, run away and hide. So he did. And then he said, actually, run away to the land where they worship Baal. And he did that too. And we saw there some amazing miracles. We saw about the flour and oil that never ran out. But more amazingly, we saw the widow woman's son rise up from the dead. And it was very, very clear just to them in that situation that Yahweh, the Lord, is true and Baal is not. We saw that in a small little way there. But what if there was a way to make it clear to everybody that this was true? Well, today we will see one of the great spiritual battles. And it begins with a word from the Lord to Elijah, chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. later, Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. Three years, no rain, no dew. All of the rivers have run dry and it's hit the land very, very hard. And we've got some hope. Because the Lord says, Elijah, now it's time to go and speak to the evil king. The king who is the, is the leader of my people in the northern kingdom, who has turned away and is worshipping Baal. What does Elijah do? Well, he obeys the Lord and he travels to King Ahab. He might have been a bit scared to go and see Ahab, but he did what he was told. But we don't see anything more for now. Instead, we flick across to see how King Ahab's coping with this horrible famine and drought. We read in verse 3, So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Ah, Ahab brings in his key fix-it man to try and get a solution for the famine. Now Obadiah, uh, he's not the guy who wrote the book of the Bible called Obadiah, it's a different one. But he is a solid follower of the Lord. And we see that in the next verse. We read that once when Jezebel, so she's the wife of the king, she tried to kill all of the Lord's prophets. Nasty piece of work. Obadiah, who runs the palace, he'd hidden a 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. So he's a good guy. He's on the Lord's side. He's prepared to risk his life by going against the king's wife. And so now we read here that um, King uh, King Ahab says, okay, we need to go and find a solution because we've run out of food. So Obadiah, you go that way, and I, King Ahab, will go that way. See you later. And as they go, Obadiah bumps into someone. He bumps into Elijah. He says, is that really you? And Elijah, jumping to verse 8, says, yes, it is. Now go and tell your master Elijah is here. Obadiah doesn't like that idea. Verse 9, he says, Oh, sir, Elijah, what harm have I done to you that you're sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? Like, do you hate me that much that you're going to send me to the king to say you'll never believe who I bumped into onto the way? Because the problem is that whenever Elijah is around, he usually gets... Sent off by the Lord somewhere suddenly. And Ahab's worried that he'll say, guess what? Oh, sorry, oh, sorry um, Obadiah's worried he'll go to King Ahab and say, guess what? I saw Elijah. He's just here. Elijah, where are you? Elijah, come now. He's gone. Okay, that's bad. Yeah, you should kill me now. That, that's, that's his concern at that point. But Elijah says, don't stress, mate. I will hang around. Verse 15, he says, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Here we go, face to face. Elijah, face to face with King Ahab. Elijah, who is the very representative of the Lord, the great prophet. He's kind of wearing the white hat, right? And then you got King Ahab, who, who is the king who has led God's people to worship Baal. He's wearing the black hat. You've kind of got them... There, maybe like an old western at 20 paces. You know, you imagine them coming in together right there. Thank you. But right there at the start, Ahab begins, King Ahab, bad King Ahab. We could do booze and he says, don't worry about that. But, But he now begins with a sledge. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? troublemaker well as we all know all Elijah's done is just do what God said nothing else he's just God's ambassador and it's hard when you're telling the truth about God because if it's a message people don't like they don't like you it reminds me just like what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the church in Ephesus in the New Testament he said I'm in chains now in prison still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I'll keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Because to be perfectly honest, every time I talk about Jesus, I get thrown in prison. So help me to keep talking about Jesus. The thing about ambassadors is they can't change the message. And that's what Elijah had to do as well. He just had to say it plain and simple. And so, you know, if the, for example, in modern day, if, if the Chinese government tells their ambassador to tell Australia we don't want to buy your lobsters anymore, then even if the Chinese ambassador loves lobsters and loves Australia, he's got to pass on the message. And so we might get angry at the Chinese ambassador, why don't you like our lobsters? He's got to just tell the truth and he's got to put up with whatever we say to him. So it is with the Lord's prophets. They don't have an easy time and nor do we when we tell people about Jesus. Jesus. You know, if you tell someone in the workplace, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, they say, oh, so he's just one of many ways. Oh, no, actually, Jesus is the only way to know God. Yeah, you say that and then kind of like just bite down on the mouth guard. And it's kind of right there at that moment. You know, you can say nothing else than the truth. It's like, oh, yeah, he's just one of many ways. It's kind of like, oh, that didn't go well. No, it didn't. Ambassadors have got to tell the truth. And so it was with Elijah. He defends his role as prophets after this wonderful little sledge. He says to him, King, I have made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, you and your family are the troublemakers. I, yeah, you're the troublemakers. No, you're the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Just in case he didn't realise it, he said, you are the troublemaker because you are the guy who's led God's people Away from God. Is that not obvious? Duh. See, the Lord is the one who should be worshipped, not Baal. Why is that? Why can we say this stuff? Well, okay, let's work it out. Who made the world? Who made the universe? The Lord? Did Baal? No. Okay. Does that help us? Yes. You make the stuff. You own the stuff. You run the stuff. That's how it works with God. And the great thing is, he made the stuff, he runs the stuff, and he loves the stuff. He loves us. He's not a tyrannical ruler, a bad ruler. You're worried every time you walk past him like he's going to hit me. That's not the way the Lord works. He loves us. And he said to King Ahab, you just got to get your people to keep loving me. And what does Ahab say? Yeah, nice idea. Everyone follow Baal. Really? Who's the troublemaker now? And so Elijah tells Ahab what to do because there is a problem. The problem is they've run out of water and it's because Ahab is a knucklehead. He doesn't follow the Lord. He follows Baal. So now, finally, face to face, Elijah says to Ahab, here's the answer, verse 19, summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by your wife, Jezebel. What's he going to do? Is Ahab going to say, oh, you can get lost, mate. I'll just wait for the rain eventually to come. No. Verse 20, Ahab, the king, summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. The great Ahab buckles to God's troublemaker, And he does exactly what he's told. He submits to the request of Elijah. All of Israel, we see, are under the failed leadership of Ahab. But he gets them all together and they go to this place called Mount Carmel. It's an impressive mountain. It's not too far away from the coast. And it's sort of at the northern bit of Israel. It's... It's the place right there where Elijah wants everybody to come together. And when he does that, they're all there. But, um, right at that point there, including the prophets of Baal, Elijah gives them a bit of curry. He says to them, verse 21, he stands in front of them and says, How much longer will you people waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. What are you going to do? And the people were completely silent. Nothing. Nothing. Chirp, chirp. Nothing. All of them. Thousands of people. Nothing. Looking at their shoes. It's a call to commitment. He's saying, you can 't believe and follow both you can 't follow both you 've got to make a choice uh, in life we, we often make it hard we, we often find it hard to make a big decision in life. You know those big decisions do I buy that or not buy that do I, do I move here or move there do I, Do I ask that person to marry me or not or whatever there 's all these big decisions in life in different times the most important decision of all is whether you will follow Jesus. Everything else is just there, nothing. It's the only decision that really matters. Because when you hear that Jesus took God's punishment in your place, and when you realise that he says, I want you to enjoy that mercy, I want you to experience that grace, I want you to know fully what it means to be forgiven by the Lord that you've run away from, When you know that, what do you do? It's like, oh, I don't know, can I phone a friend? No, just do it. The choice is there. And this is exactly what was facing the people at Mount Carmel. I mean, you might be thinking, I'm just going to wait a little bit longer before I make that decision. Most of you in this room would have already said, I'm following Jesus. Fantastic, don't stop. But you might be in the situation you think, I don't know if I've actually made that decision yet and I'm not just sure yet. I might just give it a bit more time. Are you sure you've got enough time up your sleeve? Are you sure that you are in control of your life enough that you can say, I reckon maybe somewhere between 2022 and 2024 I'll make that call? Are you sure? Is there a is there something facing you that you may not realise within the days or weeks ahead? That will mean you no longer have a choice because your life ends or you're no longer in a ability to make a choice. Don't delay. It's a big choice. It's a vital choice. And it's the choice that Elijah gives the crowd. And in fact, he gives them a special challenge. Elijah gives the crowd... A challenge. We read, read in verse 22, Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who's left. Just me, just on my own. But Baal has 450 prophets. One, 450. So he starts off by saying that. But he's not freaked out. 'Cause he knows that he might be one, but he knows he's got the true and living God on his side. And so with that he puts out this challenge, verse twenty three. He says to them, Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, you know, number one or number two, and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar. But don't set fire to it. No, no, no. You do that, you pick which one. You want that one or that one? Okay, you okay. And I, on my own lonesome, I will prepare the other bull and I'll lay it on the wood on the altar but not set fire to it. Okay, got it? And then, people of Baal, then call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. Are you up for it? Are you in for the challenge? And they all agreed. Okay, it's on. People of Baal, okay, you get your bull, slaughter it over there, and I'll just get the other one, I'll slaughter it and stick it over there, ready to go, sitting on the firewood any moment, but don't light a match. And so they do, because the gods will light the fire. And so we read in verse 25 that Elijah said to the prophets of Baal you go first for there are many of you you choose one of the bulls prepare it, call on the name of your God but don't set fire to the wood and so they did that they prepared one of the bulls they placed it on the altar and then they called on the name of Baal from morning to noontime shouting O Baal answer us O Baal answer us but there was no reply of any kind then they danced hobbling around the altar they'd made O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Over and over and over and over again. There was nothing but deafening silence from Baal. Not a thing. Nothing. It'll be embarrassing, really. bit embarrassing. And Elijah wants to rub it in a little bit. And so verse 27, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Oh, you'll have to shout a little louder, he scoffed, for, for surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. Better sledging than the Australian men's cricket team. Oh, come on, speak up a bit, but I just can't hear you. Or he's gone to the toilet or he's having a nana-nap. How do you reckon the prophets of Baal would be feeling? You might think that it's not very tolerant of Elijah for their religion. But the reason that there's only one of him is because all the rest have already been murdered because they followed the Lord. This is not kind of like, well, which box do you want to tick for scripture? This is kind of real big stakes. This is life and death. And Elijah is saying, are you sure you want to keep praying to this deaf God who's sitting on the toilet somewhere? And this is how they respond, verse 28. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no reply, no response, Nothing, nada, zero donut, zilch, nothing, absolutely nothing. Just because people are sincere doesn't mean they're right. You're not going to get more sincere religious zealots than these guys cutting themselves. Bah, wake up, come out of the toilet. I mean, you're not going to get people more serious than that. They were sincere but they were sincerely wrong. And so with that, Elijah asked the rest of the people present to come to the other altar of the Lord, of Yahweh. He said to them, verse 30, Come over here, choose this one. And then they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. There's still something about the, the full people of God there, right? And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about 12, 13, 14 litres. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, let's make this really hard for us, hey? Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. I know when I'm semi, not always successfully trying to make campfires at the end of the day, I know it's a dopey idea to get buckets of water and tip the water over my little campfire. I have enough trouble trying to do a teepee and (laughs) nothing, let alone someone getting out the bottles of water and tipping it. That's exactly what he does. And so after they'd done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. It is absolutely drenched. No matches, no fire lighters, no petrol. They covered the whole fire in water. And so with that, Elijah prays. Here we go. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah The prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. This is a powerful prayer. It's it's a bold prayer. This is kind of like do or die. This is he he is betting the house on this. He's betting his life on this. This prayer with his campfire that's been drenched by is run up the other. Lord, will you light it up? Verse thirty-eight. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven. And burnt up the young bull, the wood, and the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord Yahweh, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. How good is that? How good is God? the waterlogged fire pit catches on fire and the whole altar's burnt as well. And Yahweh, the Lord, is the winner. And all the people who had turned from Baal recognised that the Lord really is God. He really is God. And like the empty tomb of Jesus, the miracle is obvious to all. They all knew it. And it shows that the Lord, he is God. And if you were there, you would have been blown away by this powerful act of God. You wouldn't be sitting back and thinking, all right, well, thank you for giving me your sort of information about your religion. I'll take the little tract away and I'll read it. It's like, no way. You've been blown away like the altar's been blown away. You you know that there's only one true Lord and the other one is a hoax. And if you were on Baal's side, you would have been utterly humiliated by your so-called God. But what we are about to see happen is that these people, these prophets of Baal, were more than humiliated. Verse 40, then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal, don't let a single one escape. And so the people seized them all and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and and killed them there. Sudden, immediate justice. Those who rejected the true God and who killed his prophets, they now receive the justice of the Lord. All of them killed at that exact time, in that exact place. Look, it's hard to imagine what it would be like being in that time. And we've got to realise this is completely different to now. This is not what we see the Lord doing now. We don't do this to the enemies of the Lord Jesus today. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But but the bloody and violent death that was handed out upon these evil prophets is just a foretaste of the anger and punishment that is still coming to all who reject the Lord Jesus. We read this in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone. According to what they've done, he will give eternal life to those who keep doing good, seeking after the glory and honour and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. This is New Testament. This is after Jesus died and rose again and is seated with God, the Father. This is after. And talking about the future, this is now stuff. This is what awaits those who reject Jesus throughout their entire life. And when they are face-to-face with Jesus as enemies, they then receive this punishment. Friends, this is not some sort of middle-earth fantasy book. God's judgment is real and it is coming. So will you choose Baal? Or will you choose the Lord? It's a real choice. And it's a choice we all must make. But what about the rain? Well, having had this remarkable sign, we get some action in the rain department. And we see in verse 41 that Elijah said to Ahab, Okay, King Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Ahab is humiliated by the prophets of Baal and so he does what he's told by Elijah, smart king. Verse 42, so Ahab went to eat and drink like he's told but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees and he said to his servant, go and look out towards the sea and so the servant went and looked and returned to Elijah and said, I don't know, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and have a look. And finally, the seventh time, his servants told him, Oh, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand sort of rising from the sea. And Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Here it comes. Relief. Relief from the Lord God's prophet was told that God would bring rain but it wasn't before there was a time for repentance and repentance there was so what did King Ahab do evil King Ahab did he believe Elijah when he said rain's coming well we read in verse 45 yes as soon as the sky was black with clouds imagine what that must have looked like after three years A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. The drought was over and King Ahab had returned. And you've got to say, it's so awesome. This is the moment they've been waiting for. Elijah's like, yeah, come on! And Ahab's like, I'm humiliated, but at least the rain's coming and I've now worked out I've had to say sorry. And you're thinking, what could get in the way of their celebration? What could possibly dampen their party, to use that expression? Well, we read in 19 verse 1 and 2, when Ahab got home, he told wife Jezebel everything Elijah's done. Honey, you'll never believe what happened including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. I think it's safe to say that Jezebel wasn't convinced, wasn't converted, not at all. She didn't follow her husband in worshipping the Lord of Elijah. Instead, She said, I'm going to kill the messenger. She promised to kill Elijah. What will Elijah do? All the time, Elijah's the guy who says, I'm going to stand firm. I'll do what I'm told. What does he do? Verse 3, Elijah was scared and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, which is a thousand miles away from there. Not literally, but a long, long way away. A town in Judah, of all places, right at the bottom of the map. And he left his servant there. He fled for his life. He was afraid and he fled for his life. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail. We'll skip to verse 8. The Lord leads him to Mount Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments were given. That's a long, 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 long way away. Verse 8 and 9, So Elijah got up, ate and drank, and the Lord gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. Uh, In the commentary that I'm finding so useful as I'm preparing these talks, John Woodhouse says he reckons there's a pretty good chance that the cave that he is in is the same cave that Moses was in. All those years ago when Moses came into the presence of God, it's kind of like right here, Elijah is having the same thing and he's there and Elijah is in the same situation as Moses was. Moses was shattered because he's gone up there to see God. He comes back down, they've made a golden calf. It's like Face slap. It's like you cannot be serious that you would turn away from God like that. And Elijah's in the same situation. Uh, how he replies to the Lord when he says, There's anyone left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's in a pretty low place. And there's a little, there's a touch of catastrophizing there because it's a little, not exactly one. There's probably still a few hiding in caves and other things like that. But he's kind of got to the end of his tether. He's in a low place. He's been beaten up so many times in so many ways by Jezebel. He just needs to run away. What's the Lord going to tell him? The Lord, right there at that moment, as he's crushed, as he's threatened, as he stands before his people, what, what is he, what's the Lord going to say to him? Well, we read verse 11. The, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind just a windstorm. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Bang! Crash! Flash! Whisper! Or, as it's probably better translated, as the ESB footnote does, a sound of thin silence a sound of thin silence. What does the Lord say to him? What's the word? Elijah wants a new word. Give me something new. Give me something as I go to them. And what does the Lord say to him? Nothing. Silence. Thin silence. Where are you, Lord? What are you saying to me? What, what do I take away from this? The thing is, doesn't need to say a word. Why? Because the original promise was still true. The original promise was still true. I don't need to upgrade the promise, Elijah. I don't need to give you more than I gave Moses and the prophets before that. Don't need anything more. You just need to believe it. And so I'm going to skip over the rest of that chapter, but you can look at it later. But basically, the Lord sends you back to Israel to anoint a king and another king. Read it yourself. But the point is, in verse 18, the Lord says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. There actually are people there in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal. They've always been with the Lord. And so the Lord says to Elijah, Chill, mate. It's okay. Stick with the word I gave you and trust me that I've given a remnant to God's people. There was a bunch of people, 7,000 in all, who have stuck by me. They've never bowed down to the Lord. I'm not going to give up on my promise. I'm not going to give up on my people. And so he didn't. And the two chapters end. And in all of this, I would have loved to have gone into more detail in chapter 19, but we would have been here till breakfast. But have a look at it yourself. It's awesome. But the point in all of this, as we've seen here and a little bit earlier on, is there's no place for a spiritual smorgasbord. You can't fill your plate with Baal and Yahweh. Baal is poison, and it will lead you to hell. There's only one God. And we know him in Jesus. And so what about you? Will you waver between the two like they were? Oh, a bit of Baal, a bit of Jesus, a bit of Baal, a bit of Yahweh, a bit of Baal, a bit of God. Which one? You've got to stand for one or the other. Will you stand with Jesus? Let me pray.